genuine worship. And the first thing I want to do before we get into the scriptures this morning, I want to engage your mind a little bit and ask you, when you think about the word worship, what do you think about? Okay, I heard someone say praising God. Thinking of God. What do you think about? Someone says worship. What is that? Spirit and truth? The way you live. Thanking God? Glorifying God. Serving God. Heard a lot of good answers. And they're all right. So a lot of times when we hear the word worship, because we say, oh, we're going to worship now when we sing, we think that is what worship is. It's just singing. That's a part of worship. But our lives are to be lived out in worship to God. All that we do, all that we say, all that we think, all that we sing, all that we praise and give glory to is an act of worship. So this morning we're looking at what is genuine worship? Because we could call worship and define worship a lot of different ways. You can say, well, that was worship or that was worship. We're going to look at Jesus going into a temple and what he does inside a temple this morning. So before we get started, let's go ahead and pray together and ask God to reveal himself more to us. Father, we gather here this morning, and God, as we are going line by line through this Gospel of John, Father, we pray that you would reveal yourself to us more this morning. Father, this wouldn't just be something that we could check off a box and say we went to church today. But God, that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to receive and to respond to your truth that truly we would be those who would worship you in spirit and truth. That there would be genuine worship that comes from our life, that flows from the inside outwardly, and that you would receive all honor and glory and praise. And we pray these things in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. So John chapter 2 this morning, if you'd open up your Bible, John chapter 2, or your bulletin, it's in there as well. And if you'd rise to your feet for the honoring of the public reading of God's word this morning, John chapter 2, I'll be reading from the ESV, starting in verse 12. After this, he went down to Capernaum, speaking of Jesus, with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. 
Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So reads God's infallible, inerrant, and holy word. Please be seated, church. Now, for those of you that visit like a, a Lifeway Christian stores or something like that, when was the last time you saw an image of this going on? Jesus flipping tables and having a cord of whips going through a temple? Not often, right? We often see this very soft and gentle and meek, and now we see another side, which is still the true character of God. Righteous anger. Righteous anger. For us coming in this morning, many of you that have been with us through the study of John know what I'm about to tell you, that as we study this gospel, we have to understand why John recorded this gospel. We read this in John chapter 20, verse 31. He says, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Very big to hold on to that this morning because we're going to talk about belief. And there are those that have a belief that's not a saving belief. But John records this so that you might have a saving knowledge of Jesus. And by that knowledge that you would have eternal life. The goal this morning is that we would leave here understanding what genuine worship is. That we would leave here being those who would bring God genuine worship. But that we would also leave knowing that we are his, that we are saved. That there would be no question in mind that when we leave this place, whether or not we are in the faith. That we are going to diagnose that today. Now, I don't know about you, but if you've ever been to a doctor for a diagnosis, some of the tests aren't very fun. Some of the prodding and probing that goes on inside a doctor's office, well, let's just say you don't want to volunteer for some of it. As we go to the Word of God, there is surgery that takes place in our hearts. And oftentimes that surgery doesn't feel very good. But just like a heart surgeon that would do surgery on us, the results are for good. And that's what, by God's grace, His Spirit will do in us this morning. So looking in our text, verses 12 and 13 this morning lay out the setting for the text this morning. We see in verse 12, it says, after this, he went down to Capernaum. We'll start, wait, after what? After this? Well, you got to go right back. What do we just study? Pastor Manny alluded to it earlier. Jesus just performed his first miracle. He turned water into wine at a wedding in Cana. So after that miracle, Jesus, along with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, go down to Capernaum for three days. Now, just a quick side note. Whenever we read in Scripture that someone went up to a certain place or went down to a certain place, in our minds, the way we describe things, like if I said, I'm going to go visit somebody down in San Diego. Why would I say down in San Diego? South. Or I say, I'm going to go up north to, to the Bay Area. North. That is not how it's described in Scripture. It's based upon elevation. If you're going up to a higher region, you're going up to Jerusalem, as we'll see. Or he's going to come down to Capernaum. You guys follow me? Which is really interesting if you ever get to go to Israel, and you get on a bus, and you're going up, to Jerusalem, it's a long upward way. And we're going to read about Jesus' journey as he goes into Jerusalem. 
So, everybody got it? The up and down? We're good? It's not north and south? All right. So let's talk about this trip from Cana to Capernaum. It was about a 16-mile trek. I want to ask you, what was Jesus' mode of transportation? It was not Uber. He was walking. 16 miles is his journey to Capernaum. He's using his feet. And he gets there, but he's not alone. His mother, his brothers, and his disciples are also with him. According to Mark chapter 6, verse 3, Jesus had four brothers and he had some sisters. We don't have the number of sisters, but he had four brothers and sisters, which is important for some of us who were raised with a teaching that Jesus didn't have any siblings. Scripture says, yes, he did. He had four brothers and he had some sisters. So we see in our text this morning that after staying a few days in Capernaum, we read in verse 13 that he goes up to Jerusalem. Look at verse 13 with me. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. All right, so you know, I got there on a bus. And even on that bus, it took a while. And it just kept going up and up. This was not an easy trek. It's approximately 100 miles uphill into Jerusalem. Think about that for a second. We have to put this stuff in, in, into context. What's going on? We're just like, oh, yeah, he just went over here. He went over here. No, he journeyed into Jerusalem. Why? To go and celebrate the Passover that was to be celebrated annually. And what was the Passover? Anybody know? What was the Passover? You guys remember what God did? In Egypt, when he delivered them to Egypt, the death angel came in, but for the Israelites who put the blood up, the death angel passed over them. And now God's commanded them, go and celebrate the Passover. So here we have Jesus going and participating in the Passover. By the way, those who had come to celebrate the Passover, that was a way of worship. It was a demonstration of obedience to God to go and celebrate what God has done, to go and worship. Now, that sounds like a good thing, right? To go and gather and do what God's commands you to do and to worship Him. But just like everything else, that when sinful man gets involved, worship can get contaminated, it can get compromised, and that's what we're going to see this morning. That those who are supposed to come and they're supposed to worship God, but it became something else. It wasn't focused on God. It was focused on something else. So with that in mind, this morning we're going to be looking at three points. If you're taking notes, you can jot them down. First thing we're going to look at this morning in verses 14 through 17 is confronting compromised worship. How does that sound for you? Is that confrontational? Confronting compromised worship. Point number two, pursuing Christ-centered worship. And lastly, point number three in verses 23 to 25, avoiding empty worship. Church, do you realize that God desires to receive worship from us? But he desires that. He desires that we glorify his name. You know, so often people say, I don't even know what my purpose is. What's the point? Well, how about that? The greatest one of all to bring God glory with your life. To worship God. We read in Psalm 86, verse 9, All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. 
Now I'm going to do something that might be shocking for some of you, but I'm going to get a little bit, uh, I'm going to reverse this around a little bit. Look, the focus of, of worship is rightly on God, okay? That's the right focus. But the reality is there's nothing so encouraging for us as Christians. There is nothing so encouraging than to choose to come in the Lord's presence and to focus on Him rather than ourselves. For those of you that have experienced that, you're going through whatever, but you focus on the Lord, you come to bring Him praise, you know there's nothing that is close to that experience. So while God desires that we bring Him worship, we too benefit in it. The very simple change of our focus improves our quality of lives. I want you to think about this. It lifts the veil of discouragement that afflicts us so often from time to time, and it ushers us into a life filled with praise and thanksgiving. That's worship. Think about without worship, without a focal point on God, we focus on me, myself, and I, and the woes and the cares of this world. But if we just change that focal point, and focus on God, we greatly benefit from bringing Him praise. But we need to understand this morning that the ability to focus on the Lord and His goodness towards us, that it doesn't take place in a vacuum. It only, listen church, it only takes place if we're committed to removing, getting rid of anything from our lives that is inconsistent with genuine worship. You guys hear that? Everything I just spoke of, the blessings, the benefits of genuine worship only takes place when we are committed to remove all the obstacles, to remove all the distractions that get in the way of genuine worship. You know, we should not be so naive to think that we are able to focus on the Lord and His goodness to us while we tolerate things in our lives that are displeasing to the Lord. Think about that. Many of us get to that point where we think, well, this is not that big of a deal. I could do this and still worship God. We're going to see how Jesus reacts to that this morning. He's going to react to it with righteous anger. That cannot exist. It's only when we become intentional to remove the obstacles to worship that we fully experience His grace to enjoy Him and His goodness to us. And church, I look out amongst you, and I know some of you go through life, and you struggle, and you have a hard time. But when there are obstacles to worship, and I'm talking about obstacles we need to remove. Look, there's always trials and difficulties in life. But I'm talking about things that we pursue for comfort or entertainment or whatever else that are not pleasing to God. When we replace God with something else that counterfeits, then we say, well, I just have no joy. And I read in the Bible, there should be a joy of my salvation, but there's no joy. It's because I replaced it with something else that doesn't satisfy. And we're going to see again how Jesus will address, address this this morning. So the importance of keeping our lives free from anything that is inconsistent with worship, that's what we'll be unpacking as we go through this study. The importance of keeping our lives free from anything that's inconsistent with worship. So point number one, if you're taking notes, confronting compromised worship. Some of you say, Pastor, didn't you just do that? <laughs> Isn't that what you just did that intro for? No, we're going to look at Christ's example. We're going to see what Christ did. So look with me at verses 14 through 17 this morning. We see in the temple that Jesus found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons. 
and the money changer sitting there and making a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. Church, we're talking about Jesus here. This is what Jesus did. You guys follow me? Because so often we just hear about the love of Christ. Is he loving? Absolutely. To die on a cross in your, uh, die on a cross in your place. Demonstrating perfect love. But he also seeks perfect justice. And he will defend his own glory and the glory of the Father. And here we see he goes into the temple. Verse 16 continues, and he says, He told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his, his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. Okay, a hundred-mile trek uphill to go and celebrate the Passover. What did he find in the temple? Did he find worship? He found everything but it. He found outward works of stuff, self-focus, a pursuit of, of, of self. He went into what should be a house of prayer, a house of worship, and it looked, church, more like a flea market. It looked like the flea market. Instead of the focus being on God, the focus was on buying and selling and exchanging money. That was the focus. People who should be gathering to worship God were just in and trading and getting busy and, and active and thinking this is worship. I want you to slow down real quick. It's always easy. You guys know it's always easy to point the finger at somebody else? Look what they're doing. But it's so much harder to look at ourselves and go, how do I look like that? How, how does that look in my life? These merchants here, they're making a living by selling animals for sacrifice. So people coming on a long journey, they didn't have to carry those animals. They can come right in the temple. Oh, I'll just buy it there. It's convenient. It's easier. Let me buy it here. Money changers. The, law, the, the, the Jews, as they came to the temple, they had to give a tax. They were 20 years or older. All the males had to give a temple tax. But it had to be in Jewish currency. So now you've got a money changer saying, oh, I'll exchange that. And let me jack up the prices and everything else. So that's how they're making a living. You know, it's interesting for those of you that know the Gospels well, that you know the synoptic Gospels, meaning Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they record right before the crucifixion a cleansing of the temple that Jesus goes into. And by examining the wording and the events going on, it would appear that there's two different cleansings. Here's one at the beginning of his ministry, and there's one right before the end. He does the same thing, focused on the worship of God. And at the second cleansing, he accuses the merchants and money changers of being robbers. We read this in Matthew chapter 21, verse 13. Jesus says to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Why would he call them robbers? Because they had a corner on the market. Because they had a corner on the market, they were gouging up prices. You just came on a long journey. Guess what? You're not going back 100 miles to go get your, your animal sacrifice. You're going to pay whatever it costs to go through your outward act of worship. You guys know what it's like to get gouged? We would put it in these terms, movie theater prices, amusement park prices, ball game prices. You go there, <laughs> there you go, gas prices. 
What someone's got a monopoly and a hold on it, and they can charge whatever they want. That's what's going on here. But here's what's interesting. In the first cleansing of the temple, Jesus focuses on the fact that his father's house should not be a house of trade. He had a holy concern and reverence for worship. And the temple was no longer a place of genuine worship. It had merely become a place of trade. It had become a place of empty worship. And Jesus confronts the compromised worship with an outpouring, listen, an outpouring of righteous anger. What? Not my Jesus. Jesus loves me this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Yes, he does love. But he also shows that he will defend God's glory. Look, a side note real quick, because a lot of people point to this verse and say, see, Pastor, I could be angry. I have righteous anger. That's why I want to go murder that person. And, and I want to punch him and kick him because, you know, Jesus showed righteous anger. He was flipping tables and, and he, you know, he was driving people out of there. And so it's okay for me to do that too. What's well, interesting? Because we definitely are to hate the things that God hates. No doubt about it. We should despise what God despises. But righteous anger is only something that God can exhibit because he alone is holy and perfect. When we get where you're like, oh, I'm just going to let him have a piece of my mind. That's about you. Not about him. Jesus was defending the glory of God, having a high, high view, reverence, and the holiness of God. He wants to defend that. So he makes a whip of cords. This type of whip would be a whip that's not necessarily used to drive out people, but animals. And he uses that, and he drives out all the animals and also the merchants. He flips over money changers' tables and dumps all their coins all over the floor. Stop for a second. Try to get a glimpse of this in your mind's eye. It's crazy. He is going in, and he is eradicating every compromise that he sees. He's flipping over things. He's driving out things. He's not saying, oh, by the way, could you please leave? You know what? Maybe next year you, you, you shouldn't come back. You know, maybe I should ask real softly and gently and gently. No, he went in in righteous anger and he handled it. He didn't try to negotiate change. He went to make radical change. He didn't get rid of some of the merchants. He drove them all out. He didn't pick and choose what money changer tables to flip. He flipped them all over. His cleansing was complete. It was not partial. Keep that in your mind. His cleansing was complete. It was not partial. He forcefully did everything necessary to remove all things that compromised genuine worship. You know, John Calvin, regarding this, John Calvin said this, he said, why then does he drive the buyers and sellers out of the temple? It is that he may bring back to its original purity the worship of God, which had been corrupted by the wickedness of men. That's it. He was going in to put an end to it. To put the focus back on God. Let me ask you this. This happened a couple thousand years ago. Do you think that worship today no longer gets contaminated and compromised? 
Oh, it definitely does. And it does a lot. Even in the worship of just song and music. There are people who say, well, I don't like this style of song, or I don't like this music, or I don't like this whatever, and they don't want to sing. Who is the focus? Now, at that point, if you're making that statement, who's the focus? You are, right? There's compromise right there. Now, if it is just song that we're worshiping, what we should be concerned about is, is the song theologically accurate? Does it speak the truth of who God is? And does it allow us to come and bring him genuine worship? But we saw compromise when Jesus goes in the temple, and we see compromise today. We see contaminated worship today. Well, let me ask you this, because some of you are like, well, this was the temple. Well, let me ask you this. Today for the Christian, what does Scripture say? Where is the temple? Oh, I like that. I like the response. Like, hmm. That's good. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. Paul writes, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? So this morning, if you are a genuine follower of Christ, if you have repented and placed your trust in Jesus Christ alone, you're a Christian, and you are God's temple. All right, slow down. Pump the brakes a little bit. Hold on, listen. Jesus goes into the temple to cleanse the temple. Some of you are clicking right now, and you're going, okay. You are the temple. Cleansing must take place. We must apply this passage of what we're studying and turn it right back to the temple. And we are the temple. And as God's temple, we cannot allow anything to come into our lives that is inconsistent with the worship of God. We cannot. This is what we see Jesus doing. This is how he comes into the temple. This is the purpose he comes in to put it all into genuine worship, to get rid of all compromise and that God might be glorified. For Jesus, he sees there's trade. It's a flea market. The selling of animals, the exchanging of money. But what about in our lives? How does this practically apply to us? What is going on in us that is inconsistent with genuine worship of God. Remember I warned you at the beginning about going to the doctor and sometimes that hurts those tests? Yeah. This causes some probing. So look at what is in my life? What needs to be confronted that is compromising genuine worship? The question is, but how will you know when you've driven it all out? How will you know that by the grace of God, all those things that were inconsistent are gone. I'll tell you one thing you will notice, that when you've driven all of these things out, you will be filled and overflowing with the worship of God, that you will not be able to contain it, but it will be a change from the inside outward. Instead of saying, I should go do this, and I should go do that, and I should read my Bible, and I should say thank you to Jesus, you're not going to be able to contain it. Because something that's transformed on the inside now comes out outwardly. It becomes genuine. It becomes a constant praise. It becomes something that is on your lips continually. 
So here's what comes to us. If your heart today is not filled with thanksgiving and praise to God, one, you have to examine whether you're in the faith. Maybe you're here today and you're not a true believer in Jesus Christ. But if you are a believer in Jesus Christ and you're not filled with thanksgiving and praise, stop. What's going on? Take assessment. What's going on that has exchanged the worship of God for something else? What is going on in your life? What is pulling your attention away from genuine worship? What's nagging at your heart? What thoughts are yanking you away from worshiping our Lord? You say, well, maybe I know. What should I do? Well, look back to the text. What did Jesus do? He didn't flirt with it. He didn't come and say, well, maybe you should leave and come back another day. Got rid of it. He got rid of it. He exposed it and got rid of it. He flipped over tables. He drove people out, got rid of animals. And that is exactly how we are to respond to those things that are in the way of genuine worship. Christ's example would mandate that we no longer flirt with compromises to worship. But we must get serious about genuinely worshiping God. Church, what that means is we must put sin to death. The Bible speaks of it. Put it to death. How many of us had said this? That was wrong. I shouldn't do that again tomorrow. And tomorrow comes and we go, wow, that was wrong. I shouldn't do that again tomorrow. And then tomorrow comes and, bummer, that was wrong. And tomorrow will be the day. The Bible makes very clear that we must be active in putting to death sin. That we don't just say, oh, it's just a weakness that I have. It's just, you know, everybody's got the weakness, people would say. And that's just my weakness. And then we continue to allow it to contaminate worship. But instead, Scripture would say, confront any compromise to worship. Whatever that is in your life. For some of us, it might be the things we're looking at. For some of the things, it might be the way that we speak. Whatever that compromise is, put it to death. Jesus would talk about sin in a very drastic way. He would say, look, if your hand causes you sin, cut it off. If your eye gouge it out. Now please don't run out of here and go gouge out your eyes and cut off your hand. Because really, it's not going to help. Because he's speaking of is you need to take drastic effort from a heart condition that I am going to do whatever it takes to fight against this through the power of God's Spirit. All right, now you're wishing I'd just stop and pray and we're done. But if that's not enough, let's take it a step further. You guys are like love and punishment, right? It's like... So individually, we are God's temple. So we have to assess ourselves individually. But Scripture also says that corporately, as a church, we are God's temple. We see this in the book of Ephesians, in chapter 2, verses 19 to 22. Apostle Paul writes, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, listen here, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together, into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So individually, temples, but collectively coming together, building one temple. So well, I'm kind of confused. 
what he's saying here is in our text, as a church, we need to confront anything that compromises genuine worship. As a church, collectively, we coming together. You know, we can't fall into the trap that many churches are falling into. We live in a day and age that many churches, which are spiritual live organisms of God's people, instead of an organism, they've come into an organization. And they begin to function like a business instead of a ministry. And they stop being about people and they become about numbers. And we have to be so careful that that doesn't happen to us. Hey, pastor, there's some empty seats. What are we going to do to get those seats filled? Are we going to compromise worship? There are churches that do. There are churches that will fill the stage with smoke and, and everything else to give this artificial presence of God and compromise worship to fill the seats. We have to be so careful as a church not to compromise. But we must purge out all distractions. And we must focus our attention. And all of our attention, church, must be on one. And it's not us. It's on Christ. And that brings us to our second point this morning. If you're taking notes, point number two this morning, pursuing Christ-centered worship. You're looking at verses 18 through 22. By the way, that was the longest point. So for those of you looking at your watch going, I never give to lunch. That was the longest, that was the longest point. Starting at verse 18. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So the Jews asked him for a sign. They're basically saying, by what authority are you doing these things? And Jesus pointed to himself. He pointed the attention to himself as a sign. More specifically, he pointed to the fact that he would rise from the dead. Now guess what? Do you know how many people have been able to pull that off in history? Hey, by the way, I'm going to die. And three days later, you're going to see me. I'm going to rise. Any man or any woman can say those things. You could say it. I could say it. But what happens three days after we die? If we don't rise, it's over. That person was crazy. That person was a liar. They were a lunatic, as C.S. Lewis would question. But the reality is Jesus puts it out there. And he says, I'm the temple. I'm the very presence of God. I'm God in human flesh. And he tells them, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. And obviously we see they don't have a clue what he's talking about. Because they respond to him, wait, wait, wait. It's taken 46 years for us to build this? And you think you're going to create it again in three days? You're going to raise it up in three days? And apparently even his disciples didn't have a clue what he was talking about. Because it says in verse 22, it wasn't until after he rose from the grave, they remember and go, oh, now we know what he's talking about. Now we get it. And now that Messianic Psalm, Psalm 1610, that speaks of, of, of God not leaving the Messiah in Sheol, now we get it. He rise from the grave. So they believe the scripture. They believe what Jesus 
proclaim. Look, the temple took 46 years of all man's best effort to build and didn't even remotely compare to Christ. All of man's greatest accomplishments do not compare to Christ. Christ represents himself as the true temple. And he was communicating that there is a new place where God could be found. And that's in Christ Jesus, the man. Do you remember when we began this study through the prologue of John in verse 14 of John chapter 1? It read, the word became flesh, the word being Jesus. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Some of you were with us. Remember that word dwelt, what it means? It literally translates tented or tabernacled. To tent among us or tabernacle among us means Christ came to us, God with us. God came to us. The focus of our worship is Jesus. We must pursue Christ-centered worship. You want to be challenged with your genuine worship of Christ? Look at how he is worshipped in heaven. And compare it to how we worship. Revelation chapter 4, end of verse 8. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Revelation 4.11 Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Revelation 5.12 Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Church, it is Christ who is worthy of our worship. And once we have confronted all things that compromise our worship, we must pursue Christ-centered worship. He must be the focal point of our worship. You say, well, Christ, what? Well, let me ask you this. If you're a Christian today, what makes you a Christian? What makes you a little Christ? A Christ follower? It's Jesus. Jesus is the focus. And to put that one step further, why? He is the one who both lived on your behalf and died on your behalf. And continues to live on your behalf and intercede for you according to the scriptures. You see, Jesus lived a perfect life. So he could die in your place and his perfection would come to you, his perfect righteousness, as though you have lived a perfect life. That's crazy. But that's what the scriptures speak of. That he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus Christ lived righteously in our place and died a sacrificial death in our place. He lived for us. He died for us. And when he died, church, he took the penalty that was rightly due to you. All the wrath of God being stored up for your rebellion and your sin against God. And he put it on Jesus Christ. That he would pay the full penalty that was rightly due to you. That Jesus would say on the cross before he breathed his last, to tell us die, meaning it is finished. There's nothing else to be done. It's over. He has paid the price once and for all. So that we who believe, who repent and turn to Him can have eternal life in Him. 
Not based upon our performance or anything else, but based upon Christ. He is the center of our worship. He is the focus. And He is so worthy of it. Church, we must pursue Christ-centered worship. And that brings us to our last point this morning. Last point is we must avoid empty worship. Avoiding empty worship, we see in verses 23 through 25. It says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name. When they saw the signs that he was doing. That sounds good so far, right? So far it sounds good. Keep reading with me in verse 20, uh, 24. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in man. Some of you are like, oh, that's kind of wordy. What does it mean? And what's he describing? Well, we're reading here that after Jesus did many signs in front of the people, we don't know what those were. It's not described here in John's gospel. But it says that many people believed in his name. They believed. But what does it mean to believe in his name? What does that mean? What does that look like? We know Scripture says even the demons believe and they tremble. So what does it mean to believe in his name? Does it mean just assenting, agreeing to the truths of Christ? Does that mean believing in him? Oh, I agree with, with those facts. Is that belief? Does that make someone a Christian because they agree with the facts about Christianity? These are answers you need to be able to come up with. Is that a yes or a no? If I agree with the statements, the facts of Christianity, does that make me a Christian? Because here's what's interesting. Jewish historian Josephus recorded the facts of Christ's death and resurrection, yet was not a believer, but believed the facts. So just believing the facts about Christ does not make you one who is saved by his grace. Does not make you one who would genuinely worship him. You think about the miracle that happened at the wedding in Canaan. Jesus tells the servants to go and fill the stone jars. They do it. They bring the water as they were told by Jesus to the, to the, the, the master. And, and he tastes it. And like, wow, this is great. This is better than, than anything before. And he goes through all that. Nowhere do we see they believed in Jesus. Now, do you think they believed in the miracle that they just saw? They just saw it. They can't deny what they just saw. We put water in the jar. This guy said, get some out, bring it to the master of the feast. He tasted it and said that was the best wine he's ever tasted. They're going to sit and agree that, that that happened. We saw that. But nowhere do we see that led to a true understanding and belief in who Christ was, that he was Lord and Savior, that he was master. See, some will remain focused on the miracle and not on the one who performed the miracle. Jesus being 100% man, but also 100% God, he knows the hearts of everyone. For some of us, that would cause us to be scared. On the outside, we can fake it till we make it, but on the inside, he knows everything. And Jesus knows everything. And he knows those who would outwardly profess that they believe because of what they saw, and he knows inwardly there's nothing there. There's no genuine belief. Jesus knew the truth. In verses 24 and 25, 
says Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knew the truth about them. There was no internal transformation. They were not genuine followers. Those who would believe, they just believed in what they saw, but not in him. It didn't matter what they professed with their lips. It mattered what was going on in their hearts. And again, that was a couple thousand years ago. Do you think it's changed today? Can someone call themselves a Christian and not be a Christian? Absolutely. You know one of the biggest arguments against Christianity is that Christians are hypocrites. Right? If I've touted myself as a bodybuilder and you look at me and you go, wow, Pastor, you're pretty plumpy for a bodybuilder. I went, eh, easy. <laughs> um, you would sit there and go, yeah, I'm not sure I want to follow his lead on this. I'm not thinking he's much of a bodybuilder. If I tell myself as a Christian, a follower of Christ, but I live in a manner that is unworthy of the cross of Christ, well, what is that? What is that? Well, what it is, it's not genuine worship. It's not a genuine follower of Jesus Christ. These people were professing with their lips, we believe, but their hearts are far from him. Their worship church was empty. There was nothing there. It was all an outward act, a show. They showed up, they spoke truths, but their hearts were not wrapped up in God. Their hearts were wrapped up in themselves. What's in it for me? And don't we battle that all the time? Well, what am I going to get out of it? What's in it for me? But if I remain the focus, there is no worship of God. I continue to be the center of my own universe. You know, making a comment on these verses 24 and 25, John MacArthur said this, he said, though they believed in Jesus, Jesus did not believe in them. He had no faith in their faith. He saw the truth. There was no genuineness to it. And some of you are going, well, I, I'm completely confused. How can it say they believed, but then Jesus says they don't believe? Well, Jesus made it very clear when he made a call that people should follow him of what that looks like. And it's not a casual response. To Christ. It's very intentional. And it requires you to count the cost. In Luke chapter 9, verse 23-24, Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, let him, listen church, let him deny himself. Let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. What does that mean? It means are you chasing after just saving your life, doing what you want to do, doing what pleases you in the here and now? Well, guess what? Eternity is not going to be good. It doesn't matter how long we live here. If we live a full, long life to 110, eternity does not compare with 110 years here on this planet. It doesn't compare. Jesus says if you're striving after trying to save your pursuits, your life, making you the center of the universe, you're going to lose it. But if you give it up and you turn and deny yourself and turn to him, that's what repentance means. It means turn from your sin, turn from living life your way, and turn to God. That's repentance. He says, then you will actually save it. But you see the call to follow Jesus? Deny yourself. He says, those who profess to know Jesus, 
There's a call here that they must deny themselves. They must prepare themselves to live a life of daily denying themselves. That's picking up a cross. You know, today we wear a cross like jewelry, like it's some bling on our neck. That was not the symbol a couple thousand years ago. It was like us putting an electric chair on our neck or something. Look at my jewelry. It was death. That was the symbol. The cross. So he says, pick up that cross. Prepare yourself to die daily. Not physically, but to your own pursuits, your own passion. And chase God, which church, when you do that, you'll find out are far greater. The ones you are pursuing are counterfeits. The ones that don't leave you satisfied. The ones that leave you longing for more. But those who put on the outward act of, I know him and I worship him. He looks at it and he sees that it's empty worship. That they're only fooling themselves. Even if they tack on a bunch of religious duties, things that they do religiously, and they think it's for God, if their hearts are far from, it's all for naught. You know, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives a startling warning. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Stop there. There were these people who saw the signs of Jesus and that said they believed. These would be the same people who would say, Lord, Lord. But there was never repentance. There was never transformation of them turning to God and following Him, of counting the cost and submitting and yielding to Him. And here we have many who will say, Lord, Lord. And it says they will not enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. What does that mean? That means that when there's a transformation in our life, we go from living for me, myself, and I, and we live for God. We go from a slave of sin to a slave of righteousness. That our lives are radically transformed. Jesus says here that on that day, many will say to me, and they're going to justify all these outward religious acts they've done. That they think all of this is genuine worship, but it's empty worship because they didn't know him. And they're going to say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do many mighty works in your name? And Jesus says, I'm going to declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Church, let me define that for you real quick, because some of you will sit here this morning and you'll get convicted like, man, Pastor, I've sinned, and I'm a believer, and, and, and sin has come into my life, and does that mean this is what Jesus is going to say to me? You worker of lawlessness means that's what you are identified by. That is your pursuit, your passion, is to live for yourself and your self-pleasures. Even when there's a radical transformation in our life by the Spirit of God and we turn to repentance and faith, we still have to battle this flesh. It is depraved and wants to be pleased. But now we have the power of the Spirit. We're no longer in bondage to sin and we can choose to obey when before we couldn't. Before we were in bondage and we kept doing what we ought not do. So here's the thing. Genuine worship, it flows from the inside out. It's not like these who put on these outward acts. It flows from the inside out. It's not just seen outwardly. It bubbles up within the heart and it cannot be contained and it comes out outwardly. But it comes from the inside out. So here's the question. How would you describe your worship? Is it compromised? Is it Christ-centered? Or is it empty? No point for us to gather this morning to study God's Word to have us 
Spirit reveal things to us until we do some meditation on his word and look at it and chew on it and say, what does that mean to me? Is my worship compromised? Is it Christ-focused? Or is it empty? And if it's compromised, and you're, you don't have to put your hand there and jump up and down and say, that's me. Or if it's empty, my question is, what are you going to do? What are you going to do about it? Just going to wake up tomorrow and go, yep, what I heard in church yesterday, that's true. I'm still compromised or empty. And then wake up on Tuesday and go, yep, it's still empty. Until Wednesday, you completely forget about anything that happened and it's over. What are you going to do? You need to respond. You must respond. You must confront and eradicate everything in your life that is compromising you from being a genuine worshiper of God. Look at the example of Christ. Christ who we would see as the him who is low and meek. Yes, he's described that way. But with righteous anger comes and flips over tables, drives merchants out, animals out. He eradicates everything that is in the way of genuine worship. For us, we must all pursue Christ-centered worship. We must put Christ at the center of our attention. The Bible speaks of taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Here's the reality. If you're a believer here this morning, there are tough days. There's no gospel in the scriptures that say, follow Jesus and your life's just going to be a smooth road. Actually, it's quite different. In my language, it says, buckle up, buttercup. <laughs> That's my translation. Because it's going to be a bumpy road, but you have something you didn't have before. You have the Spirit of God to enable you and sustain you, to help you to overcome those things. That you can still, in all those trials and difficulties, bring God glory, bring genuine worship. Something that didn't exist before. You know, if this morning God's exposed by His Spirit to you, maybe my... Worship is actually empty. It's dead. I'm not sure if I even know Christ. Like these people who saw the signs, they agreed that they were real. They, they said, yes, that really happened. But Jesus looked at them and go, they don't know me. They're still pursuing their own thing. I urge you this morning, if that's you, repent. It means right now you can decide, God, I am going to turn from me and turn to you through the power of the Spirit to enable you to walk in a manner that's pleasing to Him. That you can turn from your self-centered pursuit and your own knowledge of God of who you think He is, and you can turn to the true and living God of the universe. That today you can submit yourself wholeheartedly to Christ. I pray that is you this morning. I pray for those of us who have compromised worship that this morning we put all those compromises to death. That this morning we would truly be able to worship God, not in just song, but in our lives. In the quietness of our room, of wherever we go, when God looks down upon us, looks into our hearts and our minds, that what he sees is pleasing to him. Now I'm going to say this to save some of you from going and getting something that you start flogging yourself every time you like had a bad thought. The Bible tells us that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to cleanse us, or to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. John 1 9. But if we confess our sins, that does not mean like we're playing Monopoly and we get a jail, get a jail free card. That I can go do whatever I want and go, redeem the card, I confessed it, and I get to go do it again. Because that same book of 1 John then turns over to chapter 2 and says, These things I have written that you may not sin. The pursuit is never sin. 
The pursuit is always the glory of God. But the goodness of God is His grace upon grace that comes out upon us. That when we stumble, we confess and turn back to Him and He picks us up and we keep going for His glory. Let's pray together, church. Father, as we've looked at this morning genuine worship, Father, for those that You've given ears to hear and, and hearts to receive, God, we have experienced perhaps surgery this morning. That You've dissected motives and You've dissected thoughts and You've exposed different things to, to individuals. Father, to those who this morning would say, oh yeah, definitely my worship is compromised. God, I pray right now through the power of Your Spirit You would enable them to be determined to put it to death. To be serious about getting rid of the compromises in their life. No longer justifying them or giving any excuse to them at all. But turning to you in repentance. God, help me. Help me to walk in a manner that's pleasing to you. Help me to bring you genuine worship. Father, for anybody in this place this morning who realizes by, by your spirit revealing it to them that there is no worship. It's empty. It's dead. Or perhaps non-existent. Not even a word in their vocabulary. Father, I pray this morning that your spirit would draw them unto yourself. That God, perhaps for the first time, all these things have made sense in a different way. Now that's the first time that they've heard the gospel, but for the first time, it makes sense. That they would go from just a belief that agrees with the facts to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. That this morning they would turn in repentance and faith in Christ alone. And Father, we pray that us collectively as a whole, would pursue Christ-centered worship. Father, help us as a church to remove all compromises and help us to elevate the name of Jesus at all times, no matter what the cost. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.